0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary wing of Reuters News, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, my colleagues Pete Sweeney and Yawen Chen chew over Chinese demographics. Once-in-a-decade census data released on Tuesday showed the country's population of 1.4 billion people is barely growing, adding to fears that a shrinking workforce will hurt the economy. In turn, as Yawen and Pete discuss, this could make it harder for the Middle Kingdom to pay off its prodigious debt load, a chunk of which was spent rather wastefully on excess housing, infrastructure, and underfunded pensions. After that, I speak to Lisa Yuka in Milan and Neil Unmack in London about, well, what else? SPACs. This week saw the blank check party arriving in Europe, but with a little less froth. British investor and SPAC pioneer Ian Osborne and Goldman Sachs alumnus Claudio Costamani are just two of the latest to import special purpose acquisition companies to the continent. Yet to win over investors, they're offering vehicles that link founders' rewards a little more closely to shareholder returns. That trend should probably catch on, says Lisa. Now give a listen.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong chatting with Chen Yawen. And we're talking about a, uh, what has become a very big matter of debate in China, um, specifically the recent release of the population data uh, census that happens every 10 years. And it startled people on the downside, I think, but it was a subject of some debate before it was even produced. Um, it was The publication was delayed by quite a bit, which was unusual. And then there was a report in the Financial Times that said that it had that it, sh- it was going to show that the population actually contracted in 2020 down from 2019. Yawen, what exactly is, did this report end up saying?
3: Right. Um, so the FT report basically claimed that the population shrank for the first time in five decades. When the report came out, there was some initial criticism just because that was comparing to twenty nineteen data, which is done on a sampling basis. I think it samples like one percent of the population, so it's not necessarily a apple to apple comparison, but um even so, I think there has been a lot of speculation um by very you know well known uh, researchers and population expert puts that China's been inflating population data for decades uh misguiding policies. Um so when the when the data finally came out after I think delaying for being delayed for weeks, it did grow, I think by a very small amount from the twenty nineteen number. Um, and over ten years it grew five point four percent. So that makes it makes the annual growth a very meager uh, zero point five three percent and that really confirms this um very worrying trend that China's population peak is coming earlier than expected.
2: Yeah, and that that seems to be a certainty. Uh, whatever happened between 2019 and 2020, we've seen, you know, the birth rate lowering and um the, the the marriage rate has started plummeting as well, you know, which we've talked about before. So so there's two things. Well, Beijing is aware of the this this possible population squeeze, right? The the whole debate over The risk that China might, you know, as they say, grow grow old before it grows rich, you know, that you'll have a country with Japanese demographics and Mexican economics.
3: Yeah, but I think that you know is what really worries. Yeah, but I I think for a long time that fear was like lurking in the background, and it's just seen as a slow, like as as being slowly played out, instead of a sudden realization that this is going to really hit us. In particular, I think. In, in light of COVID, there, there is a lot more concern about economic growth, whether China is able to really recover quickly and maintain the advantages it has obtained by coming back to normal faster than other countries. Well,
2: what are what are the problems that you see in terms of demographics economically? I mean, obviously, there's this theory out there that countries having smaller families is good for countries trying to move for po- poverty, that like large family sizes are were kind of a drag on on growth and people moving up, you know, the value, the economic chain and also particularly bad for women and women's rights. Um, China took kind of an extreme approach to this and for a long time is limited women to having only one child. And if they have more than one, they get fined or in some cases have um, abortions induced, induced. Um, but I mean, they did reverse that policy recently, you know, which I think, uh, well, not that recently, actually, they started unwinding it 2013, if I'm right and yeah. then moved even more aggressively in 2015 and yet that has not encouraged chinese women to start having larger families and and now i mean it, it just feels like there's just kind of building up pressure um to like that the government was going to have to do something about this and there's been some really wacky ideas out there about like how do we get you know chinese families to to have more children i mean one one there was a suggestion that like somebody floated that like we should start taxing uh, taxing people who don't have kids and stuff like that
3: yeah um, um but i I think increasingly in Beijing's policy circle, there is this realization that um even if they relax birth control further, which they still is they they're still holding out um <laughs> uh, from doing so. yeah,
2: it's just a two child um, policy now right no, it's just, it's just
3: one yeah, one. so they're still hesitant to 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 have like a three child policy or something. but um I think there's a, uh increasingly a consensus that even if they relax that birth control, If you look at what happened in developed countries, that is not enough to reverse a decline. So I I think now there is more focus on boosting productivity, and China needs to spend more on welfare and, you know, really um, treat its citizens better and you know increase increase the kind of human capital they have and I think it aligns. Well, can with I, If I could
2: just interrupt for a second, we should sure. probably talk real quick about the, the immediate problem, um, which is the pension schemes. Um, so there's there's been certain economic assumptions that you referred to earlier that are based on assumptions of population growth. And, you know, now they've got this premature aging cycle where, where China is getting much older, more quickly than expected.
3: Yeah.
2: And and the pensions have been underfunded. Um, how big of an issue is, I mean, I think you, you wrote that, uh what is it, 2035, the national pension schemes in general are going to be cashed, <laughs> are going to be run out of money. How, yeah, how much stress just, is this?
3: Um, I think there there is a lot of stress there, especially now we're seeing from the latest census, people aged 60 years old and older are Already making up of um, nearly 20% of the population. That's nearly doubling from a decade ago. So it it really shows China is growing very fast. And it's also, the the pension problem is also in part due to a lot of companies didn't really uh, pay their, pay their due, like pay the pensions according to the law. I think they're shortchanging it. And also before China's privatization push, a lot of SOEs uh, state-owned companies they didn't really pay for the pensions, but they kind of, after a few decades, they just like check the license. Um, um, I think they work out some kind of agreement with the government to say, okay, your pensions will be taken care of. So that leaves the young generations, um, a very heavy burden to pay for maybe one, two generations of older people who didn't really pay enough pensions. And all these policies are, I think, based on the assumption that, you know, China has a huge, um, very young population and it it will just continue growing. And they never really thought that this would become such a big problem so quickly.
2: Now, you looked at some of these um, places. I mean, there are China's a big country and there's places where there's places that are getting older faster than others. Um, I mean, you looked at like, uh, Weihai and some other cities where, where they've already started to, the population already started to contract. What, what has happened there?
3: Um so in, in China's Rust Belt region, which is basically the northeast. I mean, which is already economically provinces. troubled
2: without, without the demographic issue to be clear. To the list, <laughs> yes. Go ahead.
3: Um, um and Weihai is actually in Shandong province. It's, it's, it's not exactly part of the Rust Belt, and it's it's relatively well off actually because of its uh, trading ties with Japan and South Korea. But the country, the city has um, massively overbuilt their infrastructure and housing, and I think now over a third of the population is uh, 60 years old and older. So 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 the year when their death rates exceeded their birth rates. Um, it's it's quite. I'm not sure what's – if that's like directly a cultural thing, but pop, uh, real estate sales by floor area plunged 40% that year, and um, physical revenue just dropped 12%. So I think the longer term, all the cities are going to see a growing debt problem, and that will I think that will really uh, encourage further in outflows into other provinces. Yeah, it's, it's
2: interesting. I mean, you can have you can have I mean, we've been talking about productivity increases and a lot of the people who are kind of warning that, like, we shouldn't overreact about this population data because, you know, as as an investor, you know, what you what you want is is more wealthy people. And, you know, if if, if China can continue to become more productive and move up the value chain, I mean, continue to produce college graduates more and more every year um and continue to urbanize, you know, it can kind of manage this this change in some ways. Um, you know, you just uh you, you'll outgrow sort of the aging problem. But, I mean, I think it's interesting what you're pointing to with real estate, because, I mean, it is sort of unique to China and that, like, you've got these these older people who, I mean, A, you've got massive investment in real estate, overinvestment, excess capacity. Already, there's tons of empty apartments out there. And you have these old people who who their primary savings, you know, have been channeled into apartments. You know, and once they start selling, that's kind of a big problem, isn't it? Like in tandem, if they all offload because they need to to pay for medical expenses or something, you per, kind of produce an economic crisis in the, in the real estate sector. Do you think?
3: Yeah, it's a ticking bomb, and um, I, I think I think the government's still trying to figure out how to how to make that a soft landing somehow. Um, so that that they're freezing, they're hoping to freeze the market, not to have too much of a price. Fluctuations, And I also want to add that, I mean, this structural change of, you know, having more like older people than young people will definitely dampen constant, like con- consumer spending as well, just because, you know, young people definitely spend way more than older people, too.
2: OK, well, look, I mean, I, I guess we should wrap it up. But I mean, I, just the one thing to watch, I guess, is how the government approaches this. I mean, I think we're both hoping. And I think a lot of Chinese women are hoping that, that the approach is, is something healthier than forcing them to have more children through through higher taxes or something ridiculous like that.
3: Yeah, um, definitely.
2: But we, <laughs> I have my worries about this current regime. Anyways, thanks for chatting with me, Yaman. Um, thanks we'll talk again soon. As
1: predicted by Breaking Views, at the beginning of the year, SPAC mania would flow to Europe. These are special purpose acquisition companies. Big, big boom in the U.S. We've now seen a few in Europe. Uh, Jean-Pierre Moustier from Unicredit launched one. And this week, you wrote, Lisa Yuka, in Milan about Claudia Costamagna, the former Goldman Sachs executive launching one, along with Ian Osborne, who's been doing these for quite some time. But... They are a little bit different from the American cousins. Explain.
4: Yes, uh, indeed they are. I mean at least these two that we have seen and that I have analysed in my piece. Uh, Revo uh, is the one uh, launched by Claudio Costamagna and Hedosophia is the one launched by Ian Osborne and both are trying to be kinder to investors so as you will know uh, SPACs are notorious for offering really big rewards to the founders or sponsors of the vehicle and you know not the same level of reward sometimes to the regular investors that join at IPO, but these two are are trying to share the burden a bit with with the regular investors. So what we're seeing is that the founders are ready to sacrifice some of their potential upside to maybe in, you know, the the, the shareholders make, make the whole vehicles more interesting.
1: I suppose they had to do that a bit given that there's been a a little bit of a slackening of demand what do you think neil i mean how do you see this playing out
0: well i think that's that's definitely right i mean when you look at how much spac issuance there have been over the last the last two years something like 200 billion um in in the us um and and a small amount in europe so there's clearly a lot of capital out there sitting around waiting to do deals um and, and the question really today is if you, you know, if you invest in a SPAC, why invest in, in a new SPAC? Um, how do you know that the money's going to be spent wisely? Um, and so these kind of structures where essentially the, the founders say we will only get a big payout if we deliver value to shareholders, which is which is the way these two um, the, these two structures work are obviously much more, much more appealing because, you know, that, you know, in order for, for one of the for the SPAC to do a deal, it's got to actually make sense. Um, I think there's also an element that this is Europe. Um, spacs are much less established in Europe. They're, you know, they're, they're a pretty dirty word, really. Um, and so there's an element of, of, you know, needing to create a new market.
1: I, you you have had some spacs in Italy, of course, uh, Lisa. I mean, I think of Corrado Pasera, uh, former Intesa Bank CEO, launched one with a specific mandate to buy, you know, a financial services or banking company. And I suppose that's not that different from what. Uh, Costamanias looks
4: like, no? Indeed, there are similarities and although at the moment Amsterdam is, seems to be the preferred um, uh, stock market for m- many new SPACs, I mean Italy had quite a few before the pandemic. I mean in, in 2000, around 2018 when Corrado Passra launched his Illimiti, um I mean what is now called Illimity, there, there were almost 20 SPACs in Italy. I, I would say Say the characteristic that both uh, uh, Passera's Illimity and Costamagna's Revo Rivo share is that they are targeting the financial services space and uh, they're not in they're not huge in size. I mean, the, the Costa Mania one is only targeting 200 million euros, but the promise is that the founders will be part of the management. Actually, they will lead uh, the new company once there is an acquisition and build up the business. Uh, and one additional feature that Costamania's uh, SPAC has is that even after the conversion of some of the special shares, which is normally the point where the founders uh, potentially get a reward, there will be a lockup period of five years. Again, giving investors you know, the sense that there is a long-term commitment and it's not just a quick hit.
1: All right. Thank you both Lisa in Milan and Neil in London. Let's keep an eye on SPACs. I think it might be one of those things we end up writing a lot about. Take care.
4: Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joiner in New York, as always. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get your high-quality podcasts. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Arrivederci.